this yes. is hell. Okie doke. Happy New Year! But as proven by the ongoing horrific news out of Gaza and the West Bank, it only gets worse with each passing day, a crime against humanity to which the United States and the global arms market are both complicit. Even if we truly wish you a happy new year, it always rings true that this is hell. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen and shadowing Will today is Rebecca Ridenauer. Will, let's start with you. How was your winter break from the show last week? What was it like up in Wisconsin? Uh, it was warm. It was a balmy, like, 45 degrees. <laughs> was a lot it frightening? Yeah, it was muddy and frightening. <laughs> and uh, didn't know what to do with the unfrozen lake or, you know. There's this weird uh, lack of activity that happens in the winter up there when there's not enough cold and snow. Yeah, because no snow, no uh, ice fishing, no, ice no fishing. skiing. Right, no snowmobiling, no snowshoeing. It's just uh, a lot of muddy dogs. <laughs> nice. It sounds like a really wonderful... I think that's on the license plate now for the dairy state. It's, I think it just says a lot of muddy dogs. A lot of it's muddy dogs. Yeah, labs specifically. <laughs> <laughs> and Rebecca, what did you... How was your uh, holiday break? Uh, I don't know if you celebrate Saturnalia or what you celebrate. Uh, how was your ho- holiday break? It was wonderful. I went to Colorado. I've been twice in December, so that was that was nice. <laughs> Sweet. So for uh, with family? Yeah, with family the first time around, and then with my boyfriend's family the second time. How far away are the two towns that you go to? Uh, you know, they're a good 10-hour drive between the two. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so you didn't meet him in Colorado. Yeah. I, I Basically, it's faster just to fly between Chicago both times. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's not, not the best, but... <laughs> yeah, definitely not. So uh, my, my holidays were... Uh, wonderfully overwhelming as they usually are we travel way too much we drive way too far it's a lot of fun but it's a lot of effort too our nine days we over nine days we stayed at three different family members homes during that time we were involved in seven different holiday celebrations with different members of my fam of our family in five different cities that includes five of those celebrations happening within less than 36 hours. And those are taking place in four different cities. But it started with the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, and we had a big crowd downstairs at Carrie's Lounge on this past winter solstice eve. Thanks to everyone for coming out and joining us. Now, that seems like uh, so long ago when it was just only a couple of weeks ago. I mean, there must have been 30, 40 people down there. It was a really great crowd, so thanks to everybody for coming out. And uh, for me, the holidays are still not over yet, as my non-wife and I still have one last celebration scheduled for Martin Luther King Jr. Day weekend. Again, thanks to Neil, thanks to Sarah, thanks to Magnificent Me for making our holidays here at This Is Hell a little bit brighter. We truly appreciate your support. Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what will you do after the fuel runs out? (laughs) What will you do after the fuel runs out? Uh, And thanks to Jeff. 
for sending us that question from hell suggestion via the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page or message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole. And if you are not a member, you should join that group page. Or you can tweet it at us via X at This Is Hell Radio, or you can post it in our Discord community if you are a subscriber, and again, you should be. And you can leave your answer at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell, again, if you are a subscriber. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell. And Will has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure, by way of Hungary, is brandy-infused sparrow droppings. <laughs> Thank you. Mm. Euronews.com ran a New Year's Eve story with the headline, Remedies for the Morning After, 12 Hangover Cures from Europe. So you know it's going to suck. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know how to cure hangovers no. over there. No. Um, David Moriquand writes of uh, this disgusting cure from Hungary. Uh, yep, this is a quote. Yep, it's a thing, and it's probably the one we'd least recommend on our list of cures from around Europe. Some Hungarians believe that adding sparrow droppings to brandy will help alleviate a hangover. By this, or why this is, is beyond us. Considering said droppings probably contain parasites. Ugh. But ugh. <laughs> mm. So disgusting. Um, yeah, this is how we're all going to get the next uh, batch of avian flu. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or COVID. Just hung over Hungarians. Um, but full masks for originality and uh, make, making the cure sound worse than the ailment itself. Or full masks, full marks. Um, however, if you manage to convince a wee sparrow to come defecate in your glass, call a circus. Fame and fortune are just around the corner. <laughs> That makes this first hangover cure of 2024 Brando-infused sparrow droppings. Brandy-infused sparrow droppings is disgusting. I feel like that's going to be the official flavor of 2024. (laughs) I think so, too. (laughs) On today's anti-penultimate, that's third to last. I had to look it up. We are playing an interview with a guest who has been appearing on the show since 2017. A guest who has made it on our year-end best of shows for the third time. He was first named a listener favorite six years ago when he was on to talk about a book he had just edited, Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials, a conversation that upset some people because our guest dared to defend millennials who are suffering from all the problems created by earlier generations that has led to misery that was never experienced by their parents or grandparents they returned to the, the the show our guest returned to the show and was named a listener favorite again in 2020 for a discussion of a book the title of which the fcc hates that title is mark this down will for editing later shit is fucked up and bullshit history since the end of history which is about exactly what it sounds like it would be about. The arrogant 1990s idea that we had reached an end of history and free market capitalism had proven it was the be-all and end-all of all political economies throughout human history. This year, that same guest was nominated by listeners Korg and Slug for his latest book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World, 
So today we are playing our April interview with Malcolm Harris of N Plus One magazine. Malcolm's latest book is a must-read if you want to understand more arrogance. And this time it's the arrogance of Silicon Valley and the suckers they have duped into thinking they're geniuses when they are definitely not geniuses. If you have been enjoying our best of 2023 shows by showing your uh, uh, sorry, if you have been enjoying our best of 2023 shows, show your support and appreciation for completely listener supported This Is Hell by voting for This Is Hell and me, Chuck Mertz, in the Chicago Reader Best of Chicago Readers poll at chicagoreader.com slash best. Go to chicagoreader.com slash best. And under the city life category, vote for This Is Hell as best podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as best radio DJ. Voting is only open until January 14th, so vote now. Vote early, vote often at chicagoreader.com slash best under the city life category category vote for this is hell as best podcast and chuck mertz as best radio dj coming up another best of 2023 interview this one with malcolm harris on silicon valley we'll tell you what happened on last week's patreon podcast and what did not happen on last week's patreon podcast we will share the worst of this week in rotten history as chosen by its writer and researcher ronaldo magaldi and we'll tell you the final two interviews to be featured during this year's year-end best of series best of series of conversations live from the united states where we are repeatedly told by the media that silicon valley is full of the smartest people in the world when in reality it's far from it this is hell and now our interview with malcolm harris on his book palo alto which makes a very good case that silicon valley is not as what the media makes it out to be. This is hell. And a great fortune has been made in the Silicon Valley city of Palo Alto, home to Stanford University, which itself has made a massive fortune on its own. But what possible crime could be behind that fortune? Here to help us understand what is haunting Silicon Valley. Malcolm Harris is on to talk about his book. Uh, how did I lose my page right here? Palo Alto. Uh, you can find out more about Palo Alto, the book, at paloaltothebook.com. And you can follow Malcolm on Twitter, at Big Mean Internet. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Malcolm. Thanks for having me back, Chuck. It's great to have you on the show, sir. Sorry about waking you up so early in the morning. Oh, not at all. Hey, uh, so I, I hate when people ask a question like, what is your favorite or what is the like most important thing that you learned from your research or anything like that? So what was one of the more surprising things to you that you learned about the city where you are from? That is Palo Alto. What's one of the more surprising things that you just simply didn't know until you did your research? Uh, the first thing in like a really broad way was just how short this historical period is. So the story I'm telling is the story of Anglo colonization um, of Alta California. And as a history, that's only, you know, since mid 19th century uh, is when it begins, right, with the gold rush in 1849. And that's really like very, very short amount of time. And when we think about the colonization of North America by the United States, this is a story we try to relegate like way, way, way back to the, you know, revolutionary period or the pre-revolutionary period, the colonial period of United States history. But that's not 
the case for the West, right? This is part of the modern history of the United States, the United States as exists, and as it exists post-Civil War, as it exists you know, in Reconstruction in the 1870s, which is when Palo Alto gets founded. And so that, like, starting assumption that I need a different kind of history of for the colonization of Alta California was, like, a... a foundationally surprising thing because I had to write the book around that and the result for me was trying to pull California out of this national American history and put it into world history which is I think where it really belongs and then you look at other places in the world that have you know similar historical arcs to California and you're not looking at Boston anymore. You're looking at South Africa or you're looking at Australia or you're looking at Algeria. Uh, and so it totally twists your whole perspective on this place. So it, it's not the like surprising anecdote even it was more foundational than that. This, the surprise that this history takes place in a different time than we might commonly conceive of it. Again, we are speaking with Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, A History of California Capitalism and the World. So that's weird. I didn't really think about that because it, it like how quickly things can become normal or natural or seemingly forever. Do you think then in general that there's a uh, seeing, seeing as how the United States has this very short history, uh, you know, and especially this kind of the kind of colonialism when it goes farther and farther west. Do you think that there that it's almost essential for us to have a kind of denial of history because that makes me think of, you know, what's going on in Florida. How important do you think the denial of history is to people who live in the United States? Very important. And in fact, I think that's one of the real exports of California in general and uh, Silicon Valley in particular this historical ignorance. And you can see it even in like the business models where the Silicon Valley is constantly reinventing things that already exist. And to do so, uh, they have to be forgetting, constantly forgetting. So if like, you know, they're going to reinvent the bus or the taxi cab or something, they have to forget the social history of these forms and just think of things as just ideas that they come up with uh, randomly. But when I wrote this book and when I started writing this book, it was in the midst of what I think is a national reconsideration of American history. And I think a lot of that happens around 1870s and the history of Reconstruction post-Civil War and thinking of that era as sort of a second founding of America. And California doesn't really get told as part of that history of the 1870s refounding of America, but it absolutely is. It's essential. And the, the America that comes out of the, that period, um, California plays a huge role in it, a central role in what becomes this new American empire. Uh, and forgetting that is very important to Silicon Valley's self-conception. And if you talk about Silicon Valley now or the Bay Area or Palo Alto, it used to be that people thought like post-war era, you know, the, the microchip companies now, you know, maybe they can think back to the dot-com era, maybe, right? Maybe they just think back to Facebook, which is probably like, you know, 
half the people when they when you ask about Silicon Valley, maybe that's when they think it starts is Facebook. And so it's constantly forgetting its own history. And one of the virtues of that is that it gets to constantly forget its own crimes, right? What it did to get where it was got. So uh, one I was mentioning earlier that uh, the good folks in Detroit at in McDougal, McDougal Hunt neighborhood on uh, Detroit's east side, these uh, the Kennedy prints, these amazing printers, uh, they sent me these card. They send me these cards every so often. They're like five by eight. They're beautiful prints. And then they have a historic quote on them. One of them is uh, the one. One of the ones I got this week is from Upton Sinclair. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it, which seems to be at the heart of understanding Palo Alto in Silicon Valley. Why do you think this reconsideration of history is happening now? Do you think it's because people are starting to understand what their salary depends upon? I think that's part of it. And I think we've also seen a decade plus of uh, uprisings throughout the United States, you know, around the world as well. But in the United States, the level of unrest that has characterized our national life uh, has changed a lot. You know, uh, I grew up under the George W. Bush administration, under Clinton, um, and the political tensions that characterized our national life are not the ones we talk about now, right? We weren't talking about capitalism and racism in a, the same sort of historical way. Uh, and critical way that we are now. And I think that's a result of street movements, right? I think that's a result of uh, Occupy. I think that's a result of Black Lives Matter. Um, I think it's a result of the George Floyd uprising. So uh, I don't think this is happening just because we are getting access to new historical documents and new historical interpretations, though I think that's very important. And I write it in my book that I don't think I could have written this book certainly not the way I did without the research and the scholarly work that came out of the ethnic studies revolt um, of the, the closing quarter of the 20th century within academia and the books that were produced as a result of that. That kind of intellectual work was essential to the reconsiderations we're doing now. But I think at least as, as important were the street movements. So after Occupy, even those people who supported Occupy Wall Street, even those who were sympathetic for the cause of Occupy Wall Street, were saying that after it was over, it was a failure. And I disagreed with that at the time. Do you think Occupy Wall Street was a failure? No, no. And I, I, I may phrase it differently. I'm not even sure Occupy Wall Street is over, right? Uh, I think we're still, the tensions that characterize that that uprising um, have been continually inflamed, right? The system can't answer the critique of Occupy Wall Street. It's not like since then we've had reforms that have uh, made the passions that created that movement unnecessary. <laughs> That hasn't happened. Instead, we've seen the increase of those passions. We've seen the increase of that analysis and those class tensions um, <clears throat> within American society. So in that way, uh, historically, when we look back on this period, I'm not sure we're going to say like, oh, yeah, that was something that just happened in 2011, 2012, whatever. We're going to be looking at this whole period as a period of escalating social tension. I don't think we'll call it the Occupy Wall Street movement or whatever. You know, we can use that to describe the 
sort of igniting events of 2011. But I think we'll we'll think about it as part of a broader period. You begin by quoting a letter from Karl Marx to one of the founders of the Socialist Party of America, Friedrich uh, Adolf Sollers, uh, dated November 5th, 1880, in which Marx writes, I should be very much pleased if you could find me something good, meaty, on economic conditions in California, of course, at my expense. California is very important for me because nowhere else has the upheaval most shamelessly caused by capitalist centralization taken place with such speed. What is meant by capitalist centralization? Because capitalists often argue against centralization and claim it is not caused by capitalism, but socialism. And are we witnessing that today in Silicon Valley? Are we seeing capitalist uh, centralization in Silicon Valley? And how can there be capitalist centralization if, you know, that's only something that happens in communist countries? It's a great question. Uh, And one of the real thinkers that I look to in the book is Paul Barron, who's a, got a book that he wrote with John Sweezy called, uh, or with Paul Sweezy called uh, Monopoly Capital. And this is analysis that goes back to Rudolf Hilferding and it goes back further than that, you know, and goes back to Rosa Luxemburg and directly to Marx, which is that the capitalist class operates, you know, oligopolistically, operates functionally monopolistically. And as capitalism, uh, grows and takes control in places, it centralizes its command through oligopolistic and monopolistic structures. Um, And they understood this with regard to imperialism, that imperialism would, uh, the the need for the expansion of capital required the securing of new markets in a way that could only be done through state and state-aligned enterprises. And so this is an analysis that, and and Paul Barron ends up at Stanford University where he's teaching some of this stuff um, non-coincidentally because there's so much centralization of capital and capital's function, especially in this post-war period, around Stanford, around California, around the Bay Area, and around Palo Alto. So if you go back to the 19th century and the function of finance capital in California, uh, capital top down, you know, the capitalist class is controlling production uh, in California from the beginning in a way that they weren't able to do in other places because they had to evolve naturally through the local structures. But when the Anglo American settlers come into California, they wipe it clean as best they can, right? And so when he talks about capitalist centralization escalating, you know, shamelessly as fast as anywhere else in California, that's what he's talking about is a, a map that's been wiped clean by Anglo-American colonization and starts, you know, ex nihilo from capitalist uh, premises, which, again, like, does not happen very much throughout the world. Right. You have to develop, you know, through feudalism or whatever. But feudalism's hold in Alta California, you know, Spanish colonization uh, overthrown by Mexico was very, very thin. And so when capitalism comes in, it does it basically refuses to contend with those um, existing feudal elements. It wipes them off the board, you know, delegitimizes their claims. Um, and so you see this place that had been previously the furthest corner of the world as far as capitalism was concerned, right? No one could really colonize uh, Alta California very effectively 
goes from being this furthest corner of the world, you know, the, the furthest boondocks, you know, no one wants to go there to the center of a new capitalist world that is now circling the entire globe for the first time, you know, a single production system is encircling the globe and California becomes this center for capitalist technology and capitalist development from the beginning, right? Like you're looking at uh, mining technologies and agricultural technologies that are being developed as soon basically as those uh, gold miners are showing up, right? You have capital staying out West and developing this new place along new lines. And that's what California ultimately comes to represent. You write of your life in Palo Alto. I spent the second half of my childhood on quiet cul-de-sacs in the very nice uh, place. My life felt traditionally United States suburban, a lot like what I saw on TV. But every now and then, something else shone through the figurative fence posts at the edge of town. There were signs that if Palo Alto was normal, it was too normal. It was weirdly normal. How is Palo Alto weirdly normal? What do you mean by weirdly normal? So if you walk around Palo Alto, even in its what are supposed to be its industrial districts, it's hard to see any industry. There aren't any factories. You don't see any smokestacks. There aren't even any big buildings, despite this being one of the most productive industrial areas uh, areas of the post-war era. Uh, and that's from the beginning. The town was very concerned with how they could combine high-tech production with the sort of suburban benefits that would lure the kind of people who they wanted to work in this high tech production. And so they made all sorts of zoning rules like uh, grassy setbacks and height limitations for the buildings. And so even in these buildings where you have, you know, the real heart of cold war American industry going on, uh, there are these little buildings that look like dentist's offices and they're hiding behind bushes and these grassy lawns. Uh, and it's doing so very intentionally. And so you've created a town, you designed a town uh, that exists to hide itself from itself. Uh, and that leads to a bizarre way of being. And even like way back, even before that, uh, this disjuncture between the like bucolic uh, suburban, what the early suburban was supposed to be bucolic, right? It was supposed to be like grassy fields and orchards and whatever. And the like high tech engine of American empire goes back to the beginning of the 20th century. Even when like William James, the philosopher was brought out to Stanford university for a, uh, for a semester and starts writing about how this place is creepy and how it's giving him the creeps. And like, you know, he starts worrying about that he's having other people's dreams are entering his head. Um, and so there's always been from the beginning of Anglo-American colonization in the 20th century, really, when you get out of the gold rush period, the separation between the promise of California as somewhat somewhere peaceful you can go, uh, but then also somewhere that's producing uh a new, very not peaceful empire. It's always been peace secured by war, both in one place. And and that's creepy, right? And that leads to a feeling of psychic unsettledness. So is that, is Palo Alto uh, hiding itself from itself? 
Is that sustainable? It, we're going to talk about uh, the rash of suicides that happened in Palo Alto in a moment. Do you think that that contributed to that rash of suicides, that it's just simply unsustainable to hide, to have Palo Alto hide itself from itself? Well, it depends what, you, what costs you're willing to bear. And so the you talk about suicides. There's, there was another one this past week on the train tracks um, by a member of the Palo Alto community died by suicide on the Caltrain tracks, which is what you know, how I start writing the books is about members of the young people in the Palo Alto community keep dying by suicide on the, the train tracks. Um, and the town has shown itself basically willing to pay that cost, right? Willing to sacrifice young people uh, at a higher rate than other places with the knowledge that they get something back in return, which is also like not just creepy, but like haunted, right? That's like a classic form of uh, like sci-fi almost haunting or fantasy haunting. It's like you have this nice society that looks really great uh, and is producing all these great things and everyone seems really happy, but like they don't tell you about the the child sacrifice that goes on. Uh, And that like Palo Alto has an element of that and they're willing to pay that cost. And so you talk about sustainability, like capitalism is not sustainable as a mode of production, right? It's exhausting. It is constantly exhausting. It's constantly looking for new things to exhaust. We've only had it for, you know, as a planetary system for fewer than 200 years. It has almost exhausted the entire planet's capacity to host human life, you know? Uh, But within that system that is exhausting and is non-sustainable, Palo Alto has been a, a sustainable solution to its problems, right? When when capitalism runs into the problem, what I characterize as the problem of equality, if all people are equal, how can some people have more? Uh, Palo Alto consistently provides sustainable solutions to that problem, uh, anchoring privilege in this country. You mentioned going to elementary school, and you talk about how you were spooked when a substitute teacher came in, and instead of using the regular scheduled curriculum, the substitute sat us down on the carpet and tried to tell us something important. They said, you live in a bubble, her voice strained and urgent. The rest of the world isn't like this. Do you know that? And you add that some of my classmates told their parents about the unscheduled bubble lecture because when he returned our uh, regular teacher apologized to us what hap- uh, for what happened and reassured us that the bad substitute wouldn't be back that the district had blacklisted her if that was supposed to make us disregard what we heard it had the opposite effect on you what did it reveal to you about palo alto that someone was punished for telling students that palo alto is a bubble that is unlike the rest of the world. Why are Palo Altoans in denial of that bubble that they live inside? It's another sort of sci-fi moment, right? Where you have someone come in and try to tell the children of the place that like, you know, you think this is good, but this is, you're trapped somewhere and you don't want to be here. And then that person gets disappeared, Uh, which is, you know, a little bit of a a dramatized retelling of it by me. Uh, But it is, how I remember it more or less what happened. Um, And I think it's important for the community that it not learn these lessons or when it does, that it's able to put it behind it because it gets to the foundation of the town itself. And like the reason people have, especially when I was growing up there, the reason people lived in Palo Alto was because the schools and the schools of Palo Alto have a long 
you know, history as a state eugenic project to, to like secure American empire through the production of exceptional young Americans who would be involved in the security industries, right, in the war industries uh, on a like science and technology side and produce the weapons of tomorrow needed to secure the American place in the world, you know. It's very hard to learn about that and then do it, right? You can't uh, be forced to think about your role in the world. And instead, that what we teach, not just the children of California, but I think what we teach uh, Americans in general is instead a story of natural progression. Even back to elementary school where you learn like, all right, you're going to learn about the Indians in second and third grade, and then you're going to learn about the colonists in fourth and fifth grade. And those lessons aren't really going to overlap and you're just going to have a sort of Hegelian, you know, progression through the races of history um, so that you can feel like what you're doing is natural and what you're doing is preordained and that you don't have a choice, which I think is, some, is a very important lesson for the system to communicate, especially to those children. And if you have that feeling of no choice, then it's no doubt that you would have suicides or just, you know, massive depression amongst young people. You write the community experience, not two clusters, but a constant flow of tragic deaths in the 21st century. It continues. You, uh, as you were saying today, uh, there was just a suicide just in the last week. This has to challenge a community that had thought it was normal, if not better than normal. How has the community reacted? Has it been changed by this age of suicides by young people? You know, I think what it has done from my perspective is to reveal the limits of how a place like Palo Alto can reform itself. And I write about that in the book that it's like, it's not like the powerful parents of Palo Alto are not concerned for the lives of their own children. Like, that's not true. They're not individually saying like, oh, well, it's worth it if my kid dies because, you know, the system keeps going. Like, they don't feel that way. And I know a number of families who after the death of their child left town, you know, left the community uh, because that's why they were there in the first place, you know? Um, but in terms of how the, the community was able to try to reform itself to address the sources of what we, I can see is this epidemic of youth suicide in this community. At first we saw stuff like they were trying to cut down on, work a little bit they would you know we had had these things called homework holidays where they said you know a couple days a year or a couple days a semester you'll have off from homeworks so that you can go and enjoy life and presumably feel less pressured and sad um and of course teachers still had to get through the same amount of material so they just gave us twice as much homework on the day before you know these systems any sort of reform efforts uh failed because what they were trying to solve was already a solution and I think that's the part that Palo Alto has a hard time understanding is that the high pressure situation that they've created for the children in their community is a solution to a, you know, historical national problem. And you can't solve that solution. Right? You have to deal with the externalities, the consequences, or you have to go back to the root of the problem Um that Palo Alto is designed to solve, which is how do you maintain inequality in a world where everyone knows about each other? And if you don't want to solve that problem, then you're going to have to deal with the externalities of the solution. 
And I think that's where the community is now is dealing with the externalities of the solution that they are, right? Accepting, because it's not like people haven't been cashing the checks over the course of that period, right? That community's gotten fabulously more wealthy, more powerful during this period of, you know, child, epidemic child self-harm. Uh, so are they willing to to pay that price as a community? I think we can look at, you know, I wrote about the month that I turned in my manuscript, uh, a young person died on the, the tracks by suicide. You know, this week that we're having this conversation, a young person in Palo Alto died on the tracks by suicide. It's going to keep happening uh, and it is keep happening. So as we have discussed on our show many times in the past, uh, there is an epidemic of loneliness happening globally, not just happening here in the United States. They have a ministry of loneliness now in the UK. Uh, We've been talking about this for a long time on the show. Do you think that what haunts Palo Alto ends up haunting places elsewhere outside of Palo Alto? Do you think that Silicon Valley plays a role in that epidemic of loneliness that can lead to suicides. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can look at just the, the you know the products of Silicon Valley that are designed to route everyone's human experiences through profit centers, uh, specific profit centers uh, in the world, uh, in order to just like communicate with the people around them and how alienating that is. So just on a like, you know, cell phones make our lives worse kind of way. Uh, Sure, you can look at Silicon Valley. But I think more than that, you get to the question of the problem that Silicon Valley exists to solve, the problem of equality. And you look at like 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the question of inequality in the world was up in the air, right? It looked like with the anti-colonial movement and the communist movement and even, you know, social democratic movements, uh, that the world was going to be an increasingly equal place and that the divisions between people based on gender and race and nationality and language were falling apart and that they, they would be impossible to maintain. And instead, we've seen one where they've been not just secured, but reinforced. And Palo Alto has played a very important direct role in that, not just in California or in the United States, but all around the world, right? Sometimes people ask me, like, where is the Silicon Valley for somewhere else? You know, where where are the other Silicon Valleys in the world? And I tell them that Silicon Valley is the Silicon Valley of the rest of the world and always has been. And you look at the role Silicon Valley has played in supporting dictatorships throughout the world, uh, unequal social structures throughout the world, and securing them through the challenges of the later part of the 20th century, whether that's through like support, you know, giving rich people a way to put their money offshore in somewhere where they know they can access it. It's say in like California real estate, which is an important role for like ruling class coteries throughout the world Um, or exporting signals, intercept technology to dictatorships throughout the world so that they could repress uh, uprisings and insurgent movements within their country. Like Silicon Valley has been an answer 
to the forces uh, for the forces of inequality throughout the world, and that persists. So it's not just that like the products, the cell phones that they make are alienating or whatever, or they like make us sad, but like exporting computer systems to Chile allowed them to put people's names in a database to make sure that they killed the people who they wanted to kill. Uh, and we're still dealing with the consequences, right? Like the children of those murdered people are alive, you know? So uh, we need to think about it in that like specific historical way as well. We are speaking with critic and journalist Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. You write of this fascinating history of the beginning of Stanford University and this, the passing of its leadership from Leland Stanford and his wife Jane to University President David Starr Jordan. While evidence now shows and doctor's records at the time recorded that Jane died from strychnine poisoning, Jordan quickly made an announcement shortly after her death that it was heart failure. You write, what did Jordan really want and why was it worth killing for. While Leland Sr. wanted a trade school and Jane a liberal arts uh, palace, uh, Jordan built a global headquarters of science instead. One new science in particular struck him as the foundation of the rest. That science was bionomics, which you explained was from the British polymath Patrick Geddes. Uh, Jordan took the name for the new science of evolution, bionomics, derived from the Greek words bios for life and namos for law. Though it didn't last long under that name, bionomics, with its vision of de degenerate races and outstanding normal heroes, underpins Palo Alto's ethos into the present day. So was bionomics just another word for eugenics? And how does eugenics impact Palo Alto to this day? No, bionomics went further than eugenics because it, it took eugenics and the insights eugenics for the like fundamental reality of existence. And so it was really like eugenics elevated to a religion, which is that it not only explained, you know, competition between species, but competition within species, within social groups, within between genders, you know, between races um, of within the species of humanity. And so you took what was, you know, at best, maybe a, a progressive science of evolution and turned it into a like religious political faith um, under this name of bionomics. And so it's a lot more like something we recognize today as uh, evo-psych, evolutionary psychology, um, is like almost exactly the same as bionomics in terms of what it was teaching, right? Which is that these strictures of uh, domination and competition um, is the outline for all forms of interaction on earth period and that it had implications for the national project and so it wasn't just like eugenics as a uh, you know david star jordan who we're talking about was an ichthyologist right he studied fish and so bionomics um for fish was about studying fish in an artificial environment that is meant to mimic its normal environment. Uh, but they took that and developed it, what they understood its implications to be as a whole science of society. 
<laughs> that's just amazing. So you write the key to the effort was Jordan's 1898 recruitment of his former Indiana student and eugenics dev- devotee, Elwood Patterson Cubberly, who worried that new immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, as well as Japan, were diluting America's stock and causing racial indigestion. So is there a history and maybe even a current culture in Palo Alto that either fears outsiders or degenerates strangers or both? Is that still happening today in Palo Alto? Absolutely. Well, but it wasn't just about, you know, fear of strangers or keeping others outside or outside the gene pool, because this coexists with uh, global labor flows. And just as much as eugenics was one of the contributions of Palo Alto and the Palo Alto community, so was global labor arbitrage and the idea that you could bring people in from around the world and pay them less money to work for you, even though their work was just as good. And this goes back to Leland Stanford and the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad, where the the associates of the Southern Pacific Railroad and the Central Pacific Railroad um, brought in Chinese workers to complete their end of the Transcontinental. And that's a strategy that's continued through the entire history of California and Palo Alto into the present day, Um, with like, you can see H1B visa holders working in the tech industry and how some tech firms prefer H1B visa holders because they're dependent on their employers, not just for their wage, but for their immigration status. And that's a, that's a relation that goes all the way back. Um, and you have eugenicists, you know, people who believe in eugenics doing the same, same practice, right? So the two coexist, uh, very cleanly in fact, right? So Believing in an order of races doesn't necessarily mean you only want your kind around. It also means you're able to use that idea uh, to increase the overall level of labor exploitation. So was bionomics, was Stanford University, were they trying to scientifically prove white supremacy with quantifiable metrics? Was that what they were trying to prove? That was one of the things they were trying to prove. Absolutely. And so you see... uh, Lewis Terman, who is another guy who was brought in from Indiana University as part of that bionomics crew, even though he ends up working under the the title of psychology, in fact, becomes a uh, president of the American Psychological Association. And one of his early, big early contributions was to take this test that had been developed in France and to change it around to make it a test of IQ for anyone that you could test anyone's that they believed they had a, a test and it was a very bionomic type innovation which is that they do believe that they derived this test created this test that could pull out a real natural quality from humans um, and put it in, in a way that was countable and they used this test yeah to like test different races and assign different races uh IQ tendencies, and then to pursue segregation. And so you see one of uh, Terman's students studying, you know, how many Italians there are per classroom in the Bay Area schools and how you can separate the Italians out because they are Negroid and like they're the Negroid Italians are dragging down the IQ scores of the, the Anglo students in the schools. And so that's some of the like style of intellectual work that's coming out of Stanford in the period. 
And you write that Terman's Stanford Binet scale was bionomics for humans, a test meant to summon general intelligence from within an individual, pulling it out where scientists could capture and quantify it. The test, is, in fact, did nothing of the sort, asking questions like, what is Christy Mathewson's job? Answer, pitcher for the New York Giants. Sports trivia was a fine way to test what was a rickety trait in the first place. The idea of a unitary general intelligence is a convenient myth, one that collapses as a scientific concept the minute you put any critical pressure on it. Plenty of Terman's contemporaries said as much at the time, but the IQ test sold very well, and he followed with a standard achievement, a Stanford achievement test that sold even better. Together, they made their lead author a star in psychology so here we have something that contemporary contemporaries are saying is not you know something that actually exists that it is a myth yet as long as it sells it is embraced do you think that legacy is, has an impact on what is happening in Silicon Valley today? That it doesn't matter the impact or the consequences of any new kind of idea or technology because consequences just don't matter. Yes, but I think you can go even more specific that you look at the culture of Stanford researchers and professors um, also forming in the private sector at the same time. You know, that's a story that is traditionally told around the post-war era around Lewis Terman's son, Frederick Terman, who leads the sort of birth of the Stanford tech uh, industry, the tech defense, you know, Silicon Valley industry um, at the Stanford Industrial Park, where Stanford sets up a space for companies to, you know, do their private work and links them with Stanford professors and Stanford grad workers for all sorts of stuff. But really, it goes back even further to Lewis Terman getting paid for all these intelligence tests. Um, and this is really the first cohort of Stanford University, more or less, like the very beginning. Professors were saying not just, OK, how can I uh, pursue knowledge at this university, but also how can I spin my research off and acquire some financial independence? And, you know, Lewis Terman didn't, you know, become a tech entrepreneur and get super rich or whatever but he did with that money uh support his own research so he was able to like uh conduct it in the ways that he wanted as well as end up supporting his son frederick's research uh later and some of the tech companies around palo alto so he really is the the birth of that model and we can talk about it very specifically and we still have that at stanford now where the current president is a you know, former Genentech guy who's now under heavy, heavy scrutiny for having falsified uh, data in his studies during his for-profit days. Um, but that's the like environment of the community and its scholarship is not just like, what can you find out, but also how rich can it make you? I want to make certain that everybody understands your book is 700 pages long, and there's no way we're going to be able to talk about everything that's in the book. So I want to move toward your solution, if you will, 
for the problems of Silicon Valley. You write, what does it mean to abolish Silicon Valley? Asks tech worker Wendy Liu in her prescriptively titled book, Abolish Silicon Valley, which I cannot believe I missed somehow and didn't have her on the show. Uh, Liu's conclusion is that capital's ever accumulating need for profitable sinks is incompatible with the kind of democratic control over modern technology that the Black Panther Party put on its program. Based on what we've seen of Palo Alto's 150 years, it's hard to disagree. Profitable sinks are bad for democracy. So, you know, can they be made unprofitable so there may be democratic control over modern technology? Can this be fixed with just simple reforms? I don't think so. (laughs) And I haven't seen any evidence that it's able to correct its own problems. And I think that's because we have a, a system that is two things, fundamentally two things, both uncontrollable and exhausting. And you have a system that's both uncontrollable and exhausting. It's only a matter of time before it destroys uh, the foundation for the livability of people on this planet. And we see this from the beginning when you see, you know, Marx talking about the shameless centralization of capital. Uh, That's happening ecologically as well. So you see in the gold mining industry, it transitioned very quickly from, you know, individual guys with pans panning in the river uh, to hydraulic crews that are channeling whole rivers at mountains so that they can put the soil, you know, through a filter, basically. And the one of the towns where Leland Stanford you know, starts his political career, the hydraulic miners undermine the foundation so literally that the whole town slides down a hill. Uh, and so that's the system that we're dealing with. And at no point in the past 200 years or so, you know, less of planetary capitalism has that system been able to look at what it's doing and say, like, OK, this is destructive. We need to find a new form of social metabolism not just you know we need to change one thing to another thing but we need to analyze the fundamentals of the system it's not able to do that right it's that would be like eating its own tail uh it's not possible and so we've got a situation where the representatives of that system their job isn't to solve our human problems it's to solve that system's problems on its own terms. And so when we are trying to negotiate with the, the representatives of that system, and I talk about historically, you know, all these efforts to do so, uh, trying to get them to use reason and look at these situations like a person, they consistently fail to do so. And maybe the, the most human thing they can do is explain why and say, look, it's not me. If you can get, I could quit, you know, I could lose, but then you just have to deal with the next guy what you're talking about is a system. And so that's how I come to understand it in the book. And I hope that's how readers come to understand it as well. You write that Silicon Valley isn't destroying itself. It's destroying the world. And you write that Silicon Valley is defined by a refusal to stop or even to slow down, which given the dynamics of finance-led growth would amount to the same thing. So is the genius, if you will, of Silicon Valley not its computer-oriented high-tech innovations, but its financial innovations? And if so, how do you think it is viewed differently when the first image you have connected with Silicon Valley isn't, you know, high-tech innovations, but instead it's finance and venture capitalism? 
I think even deeper than finance and venture capitalism, because there's a there's a tendency for people to think of it all as like finance fluff and fraud. Uh, and there obviously is some of that. But I think there's something real and substantial underneath that. And that's the the American imperial project. Right. And that's the a scarier thing than just thinking about it as finance and fraud. And so may think about it on, on these terms that the, the industry itself would have us think about Silicon Valley and its products in terms of the personal computer and the microchip. Maybe the critics of finance would have us think of it in terms of like pets.com or, you know, or Webvan or any of the, or even Facebook. Um, and what I'm asking people to think about it instead is in terms of nuclear missiles, because that's where the entire first generation of silicon chips went, is nuclear missiles, right? I'm think, asking people to think about signals intercept technology that are being used by the Shah um, to arm the secret police to repress dissent, you know? That's how I want people to think about Silicon Valley, not, not either as this unfolding of human technology um, or this just sort of like fluffy place of uh, con men but as part of this American imperial project of the 20th century. Is Silicon Valley then a tool for what began in California, what began, you know, 150, 200 years ago in California? Is it Silicon Valley just a tool for continued colonialism, a high-tech, financialized, heavily funded colonialism? Yeah, well, I I would say capitalism even more broadly. That colonialism is is a... a tool of capitalism as we understand it and that Palo Alto is not just a tool of capitalism but really like the tool of planetary capitalism in a way that I didn't uh, even expect or understand when I started this project that that's not how the industry talks about itself it's not how the region talks about itself but when you actually look at this history in the sort of long durée from the 1870s to now it's really clear how essential and important Palo Alto has been to this project that I really do think is a a sinister project um, throughout that whole period and into today. You write, I am committed to this planet, which means I have to hold on to the possibility of an alternative to capitalist exhaustion. What then would that look like? What else is Palo Alto to do with itself? How about giving it back? I can't know what it would be like in practice for Stanford to withdraw from Palo Alto. And I understand that at first it probably strikes many readers as a maximalist proposal. But in the context of the exhausting trends we've observed since the Anglo colonization of Alta, California, returning the land strikes me as downright pragmatic and you quote the uh, indigenous writer Nick Estes writing for the earth to live capitalism must die do you think that we have to choose between Silicon Valley surviving or the planet surviving is it Stanford or earth yeah I think I think that's what it is and no matter how many press releases Stanford issues about their new sustainability school or the claims that Silicon Valley is making about their, you know, new decarbonization token economy or whatever, uh, we're looking at a situation that is dire, right? Ecologically dire for the people of earth. Uh, and 
who can we blame for that, right? Like, who do we look at? Who is, what systems are pushing us toward that brink? Uh, and for Silicon Valley and Stanford and Palo Alto to step forth and say, well, we've got the solution. We're the tech guys. We're the solution guys. You've been, we've been solving all, all your problems for the last couple of decades. Well, we can do this one too. Um, again, that's a product of their forgetting. And if you look at the long history of Palo Alto, it's clear that these aren't some guys who showed up recently with solutions and have more solutions to give. Uh, they're the the origin of the current status quo, right? Those are those guys. Uh, and we need to understand that historical lineage. And if we forget, we're in danger of voluntarily giving them more power than they've already got. We have been speaking with Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, A History of California Capitalism in the World. This is Malcolm's third appearance on our show. Search on his name at our website, thisishell.com, to find the other interviews we've done with him. Find out more about Palo Alto at paloaltothebook.com. Follow Malcolm on Twitter at BigMeanInternet, as we do with all of our guests. And you may or may not remember, our final question is always the question from hell. The question I hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response, or they're just going to hate how long-winded this question is. So prepare yourself, Malcolm. Uh, You write that at every step, capital used up working people churning through Earth's only truly inexhaustible resource, that Amazon is a market leader in workplace mechanization, labor exploitation, and low-end wages, all at the same time is deeply concerning. Jeff Bezos is pointing a way forward for technology and not one that makes life easier or better for labor. Instead of making progress toward the widely prosperous, if not equal or egalitarian society that capitalism promised, Things are getting worse, which made me think of, you know, Martin Luther King's 1963, I Have a Dream speech about the broken and unfulfilled promise of equality that is in the founding documents of the United States, but then is contradicted within many of those same founding, uh, you know, documents. We live in a nation that has broken its uh, foundational promise of democracy and equality, a promise of all having equal access to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, promises that were then broken in the founding documents. Like I was saying, we also live in a nation that embraces a political economy that also does not fulfill its promise of a widely prosperous society, not one wherein a few have massive wealth while the rest of us suffer. Does U.S. democracy not fulfill its promise because capitalism does not? Or is it because capitalism does not fulfill its promise that U.S. democracy does not? What is the relationship between the broken promise of democracy and the broken promise of capitalism? I've never been that invested in the promise of democracy, or at least not since 2008, when it was very clear to me that this this uncontrollability was a fundamental character of capitalist system. And if it's fundamentally uncontrollable, then I think you no longer lay the fault at the like particular movements of the American political system. Um, and so the I don't I don't have much of a like imminent critique of American democracy because I have this sense of uh, its own history. And so if you look at like the massacres of indigenous people in California, a lot of these are going on by uh, you know Republican forces theory in theory, right? Northern forces, the forces of good in the country during the Civil War. You have uh, 
Union troops coming back from the war to go suppress labor actions uh, in the mines in Alta California uh, directly, coming directly back from securing this new nation to repress Chicano workers uh, in the mines or indigenous workers in the mines, really. Uh, so personally, I'm like an anti-constitutionalist. I don't have any uh, big investment in those founding promises. So I think the analysis of capital um, is more fundamental than any sort of analysis of the American political system. Malcolm, it is always a true pleasure having you on the show. I really appreciate every conversation that we've had on the show, and I want you to start working on a new book immediately so we can have you back on. Uh, but right, we'll, I got to go four for four. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But uh, I'll stay in contact with you because we'd love to have you on the show even before then. I, thank you so much, Malcolm. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for having me, Jeff. All right, take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Last year sucked, and still we cannot imagine how bad this year is going to be because this is hell if you liked what you just heard from Malcolm Harris about Silicon Valley and his uh, book Palo Alto. Show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Last week on Patreon, we did something we very rarely do, and that is we pre-recorded the podcast a week in advance because none of us were in town to do the show live last week, but apparently I had already checked out. My brain was clearly already on its own holiday break, and I'll explain in a moment. So first, I made all my guaranteed 100% accurate predictions for the following year, which is this year, 202024. I've been making these predictions for a few years now, and they are always 100% correct, more or less. But unlike other prognosticators, I actually go back and look at my past predictions to see how well I'd done something those experts in the media are unwilling to do because it would reveal how wrong they always are and revealing they know very little about the future would show how little they understand the present or the past. With every Patreon podcast, not only do you get a monologue from uh, me that cannot be heard anywhere else, you also get an archived interview from our vast vault of past conversations that are not available anywhere else online but on Patreon. Last week, the interview I said we would be playing was one from 2005 with Michael Massing of the Columbia Journalism Review, who was on to talk about how the U.S. press, in reaction and response to 9-11, became propagandistic lapdogs for the U.S. government, even more than they already were. But there was a problem. We had played that exact same interview the week before, but my brain was already on vacation, so neither I nor Will noticed. In fact, we didn't even notice that we had not announced the first question from hell for 2024 as Patreon patrons get first crack at the question from hell every week. Will noticed the mistake we had made uh, when he went to post the Patreon podcast last week, so instead of replaying the same interview with Michael Massing on the U.S. press having the freedom to be propagandist, we went back to the vault and found a conversation from October 4th, 2008, when we spoke with author David Zirin about his book, A People's History of Sports in the United States, 
Will, please remind us what is this week's question from Alan. Tell us how some of our listeners are responding so far. Uh, This week's question from Hell is what will you do after the fuel runs out? Good first question of the year. Sure, very hellish. Let's see. Let's do our Patreon listeners today since it's the top of the week. Sweet. Um, Starting off with Mason W. who says walk. (laughs) Good practical answer. Very good answer. For those able to do so. Sure. Uh, Matt H. Oh, sorry. You're saying Mason is an ableist? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Ableist Mason. <laughs> that was a backhanded way of saying it. I am from the Midwest, after all. <laughs> That's right. You want to be polite when he's right. Um, Matt H. replies, cold soak. <laughs> all right. Genevieve answers, we'll all run on human-sized hamster wheels connected to a giant battery to keep the lights on. That's basically the Matrix, right? Yeah, pretty mm-hmm. much. Um, Tom H., whose picture is the This Is Hell camping mug. No, sweet. Um, Answers, bulk buy shares of ExxonMobil at a considerable discount. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you're going to be doing with those. I don't know. (laughs) Doorstop, maybe? Yeah. Uh, Neil C. (laughs) replies, hijack the Muskmobile to Mars. (laughs) (laughs) That's a pretty good one. It is. And Neil C., thank you for all your support. Really appreciate it. Yep. Uh, Riley J. Plus, work on myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be a better human being now. (laughs) Nick E. answers, switch over to anabolic respiration and keep on trucking. (laughs) All right. Nas Refuge says, damn it, I finally broke down and bought a stupid car after riding my bike for the past 10 years and now you're telling me we're out of damn fuel <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly that's like the family we're going to be uh, visiting soon who told us that uh we uh, should come and visit them really soon because uh, you know there's going to be a total financial collapse and so you should probably get down here now before the financial collapse actually happens and we said if we're actually concerned about a total financial collapse how the hell are we going to get to where you live like if the financial collapse actually happens i'm not going to be able to have fuel to go anywhere right makes no sense and maybe they just want you to get stuck there (laughs) that's good thinking i like that it's a trap (laughs) it's a trap um old grouch responds to the question what will you do after the fuel runs out with Wonder why no one noticed that the food had already run out. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> At least we filled the bathtub with water, catching every sunset with my love. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, some good answers. Sure. And then uh, last answer on Patreon is from Jeffrey T, who answers, When I run out of fuel, I'll burn through the witches I slam in the back of my Dragula. <laughs> it's a Rob Zombie lyric. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I love that. <laughs> So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can post it in our Discord community or at our Patreon page. Or email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly moment of truth. 
Will, what is the moment of truth Jeff has selected as his favorite of 2023 that we will be replaying tomorrow? During this week's moment, we will be replaying Jeff's favorite moment of 2023 from February 15th of last year titled Faceless People from Indiana. (laughs) The day after (laughs) Valentine's Day. I'm sure it's a Valentine's letter to the people of Indiana. That's terrifying. It is. And Indiana is terrifying as well. Can be. Though no no longer the uh, Crossroads of America. They finally changed the state logo or slogan, but I can't remember what it is. I used to love the Crossroads of America because basically Indiana was just saying, just move along. That's There's right. no reason to stop here whatsoever. Those of us who are here got stuck here. Exactly. So it's time for the nastiest, gnarliest, most nauseous, naughtiest, nerdiest, ickiest, drippiest, stickiest, goopiest, gloppiest, globiest, goriest this week in rotten history, as chosen by its creator, Ronaldo Magaldi. On January 4th, 1903, 121 years ago this week, a 27-year-old Asian elephant named Topsy was publicly executed at New York's Coney Island, because nothing says amusement park like an assassination of an elephant. Topsy had been captured in the Southeast Asian wilderness as a juvenile shipped to America and sold to the Four Paw Circus based in Philadelphia. For the rest of her life, she had endured constant abuse by handlers and spectators, and on a few occasions she had reacted physically, such as the time she turned her trunk to pick up and throw a bystander who poked her in the neck with a long stick. A few months before her death, Topsy had made headlines when a drunken uh, circus goer burned the end of her trunk with a lit cigar. And she responded appropriately by crushing the dick to death. He, the, the bad publicity caused the circus to sell the elephant to a Coney Island amusement park that proved unable to handle her and could not find anyone else who would take her even for free. So the park arranged a public execution. Before hundreds of spectators, Topsy was tied into a harness, fed carrots laced with potassium cyanide, electrocuted with more than 6,000 volts, and finally strangled with a steam-powered winch Years later, an urban legend would claim that Thomas Edison, whose company favored direct electrical current, D.C., had staged the execution to frighten the public away from the alternating current used by his competitor, George Westinghouse. It's true that Edison did electrocute animals for that purpose, but he was not directly involved in the killing of Topsy. Though his company did document the execution, in a short Nickelodeon film from which it sought to profit commercially. Proving yet again, even though Thomas Edison didn't kill Topsy, he still was an asshole. Also on Rotten History, in Rotten History on January 4th, 1960, 64 years ago this week, the French novelist, essayist, and philosopher Albert Camus had just spent the holidays in Provence with his family and his publisher, and when was on his way back to Paris, Camus, author of The Stranger, The Plague, and The Myth of Sisyphus, and winner of the 1957 Nobel Prize for Literature, had traveled to Provence by train with his wife and two kids to celebrate the holidays with his friend and publisher, Michel Gaimard. But for the return to Paris, he had been persuaded to ride with Gallimard in his car. Camus saw his wife and children off at the train station, then joined Gallimard 
riding in the front passenger seat, with Gallimard's wife and teenage daughter in the back. About 65 miles from Paris, as they passed through the small town of Villeblevin on dry roads at what should have been a safe speed, Gallimard lost control of the car and went into a tree. The women in the back seat survived the crash, but Camus was killed instantly. Gallimard died of his injuries a few days later. Found in the car's wreckage was the manuscript of an unfinished novel by Camus that would not be published until 1995 under the title The First Man. Born and raised in French-dominated Algeria, Camus had encountered some controversy among the political left, not only over his ambiguous position regarding Algerian independence, but also for his public opposition to the Soviet Union. In 2011, an Italian journalist claimed that his death had been caused, Camus' death had been caused by KGB operatives who sabotaged the tires on Gallimard's car. But most experts have preferred to view the accident as an appropriate manifestation of the randomness and absurdity that Camus had so often written about in his work. For his own part, Camus had once said, quote, I am for the left, despite myself. And despite the left. Now that's the rottenest of histories, and this is hell. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcasting, live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Will Ippen with Rebecca Ridenauer. Thanks to Will and Rebecca. This is hell has been nominated as best podcast in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll. And your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, that's me, Chuck Mertz, is nominated as a finalist in the Best Radio DJ category. Go to chicagoreader.com slash best and under City Life, under that category, vote for This Is Hell as Best Podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as Best Radio DJ. Thanks to everyone who nominated us to make us a finalist. Also, show your support for Carrie's Lounge, which is being, which has been nominated as a finalist as Best Neighborhood Bar best dive bar and best beer garden again that's at chicagoreader.com slash best will who are our upcoming guests on this week's show tomorrow we are playing our september discussion with truth outs kelly hayes on the boston review essay she co-wrote with past guest mariam kaba how much discomfort is the whole world worth Movement building requires a culture of listening, not a master of the mastery of the right language. So you don't have to be friends to be in a movement together. That was basically the thesis of her statement. Yeah. And uh, who's wrapping up our whole Best of 2023 series? How uh, we wrap up the Best of 2023 by playing our August interview with Gerald Horn on his latest book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 through 2000. That is the seventh straight year that listeners have selected Gerald Horn as one of their favorite interviews to be heard on This Is Hell, which guarantees that Gerald Horn will be on the show again in 2024 and likely make the list one more time. It's also the third time they'll be hearing this interview this year. This year. Yeah. Because we played it, and then we played all seven of our past interviews with Gerald in uh, while we were out of town, while we were on a summer break. And so this is going to be the third time you've heard it this year. should just rename the show. This is Gerald Horn. <laughs> <You> should. <laughs> this is how Office Hours returns this Wednesday and every Wednesday evening throughout January at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. 
It's our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think, and it begins again every Wednesday evening around 6 p.m. It's going to be real cold the next few weeks uh, during office hours, so I'll see you up back by the open fire pit in the beer garden. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>